Zechariah, minor prophet Zechariah. If you're not sure where that's at, find Matthew and then just go backwards a little bit past Malachi and you'll find Zechariah. Before I begin with the sermon this morning, I just want to give you a brief update on Pastor Steve. He texted this morning, and most of you are probably aware if you're on Facebook, just the where he's at with the surgery. The surgery did go well on Thursday, and they put in some screws and plates, and he texted this morning and said it's the third day after the surgery, and as expected, he's in quite a bit of pain, but thankfully, God in his common grace has given pain medication as well. So Steve is on that. So if you text him and you get an odd text back, um, just chalk it up to the pain meds he's on. So, um, but Lord willing, he will be coming off those about a week or so. And then in a splint and in a cast and his desire is to be back with us after his cast is removed, I think is his, his goal. So that'll probably be about five or six weeks out from when he can return here to be here with us. And then Lord willing, he'll be resuming some of his responsibilities gradually as he's able to after that time. So be praying for him, praying for Tony and the family. Good to see them here this morning as well. The book of Zechariah. It is an interesting book. It's the longest of the minor prophets. It's 14 chapters. Probably would take you about 35 to 40 minutes to read through in one sitting. It also can be a book that's very convoluted in our minds. We're not used to reading things like this and, and thinking through them. Um, even if you look with me in, in chapter 1, verse 18, you begin to see one of the visions that, that God gives to Zechariah, one of these visions in the night of Revelation. And Zechariah says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And from the very beginning, we can identify with Zechariah. We begin to ask this question over and over again. What are these? What does this mean? What is going on in this book? And thankfully, the angel that is there speaking with Zechariah comes with the word of the Lord and gives much explanation for us and much help to us. But there are times where it is difficult. and There's times where we wrestle through what the book is getting at and what the imagery means and the visions and we have to do some work to put it together. We're not going to have time to work through the entire book this morning. Obviously, 14 chapters and celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're not going to be able to go through the minor prophet like we have the others. So I want to give us some big ideas, some, some big concepts, some big hooks for us. For you to go back and read through the book of Zechariah again. And consider the message of God to his people and to us. Let me start with the problem that Zechariah addresses. We'll say it like this. Whenever we stray from worshiping God and obeying his word, we are in need of spiritual renewal and revitalization as God's people. Or if you are not a child of God, if you are not a Christian, a believer in the first place, then you are in need of regeneration. You are in need of God to give you life and to turn to him. So the passage that we read this morning of the call of Levi. This was the call to turn, to be a disciple, to follow Jesus. The book of Zechariah comes with the approach to these people that they indeed are the people of God. And as the New Testament believers, as we're reading back into Zechariah and looking through the lens of the Messiah who's come, we come to it as believers primarily today. Though I know that there might be someone here today who's never turned to Christ initially, and that call to you is the same. Turn. And look to Christ. 
But here's the grace that God gives his people when, when they stray from worshiping him. And how do we know this? Well, they've been in exile, right? They, they have just completed their 70 years of judgment of God against them for their sin, which he prophesied over and over and over again through the minor prophets and the others. They've been under punishment. They've been under judgment. But here God begins to pursue his people. God promises that he will cleanse his people. God promises that he will restore his people. God promises that he will renew his people. God promises that he will bring new life. He will revitalize them. Well, how will he do this? And it repeats over and over and over again in the book. This will happen through his word and through his presence. This kind of cleansing, this kind of restoration, this kind of renewal will come to his people as they give themselves to the word of God and as they embrace the presence of God in their lives. So our theme this morning is a simple one. The theme of Zechariah is very clear from the very beginning, and we see it in verse 4. Do not be like your fathers, he says. But thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways, and I will return to you. Here's the message. God calls us to return to him, and he will return to us. One of the best purchases I ever made in my life was uh, one of these portable GPS navigation systems before smartphones existed. I was in seminary, actually college, I think, maybe uh, my first year of seminary, and started dating Kristen. And she at the time was traveling in the geographic region where I was, but it was still several hours away, and I would take the weekends and try to find her to pursue her. So I needed the GPS system to do that in order to keep up with her schedule. So I had this, but... Then when we moved to Virginia Beach to continue my seminary, um, new town, new place to be. And so even driving around town, it was difficult to get around. And I was so thankful I had this because um, Hampton Roads, Virginia Beach area, is not like Denver at all in the way the roads are laid out. For most of you that have lived here, you know that Denver's roads are, are fairly well laid out in a grid, east-west, north-south, for the most part. You know where the mountains are. And you know if you see the mountains, you know that's west if you're in Denver. Well, in Virginia Beach, there are no mountains, and the trees are dense around most of the side roads, and you can't see really where you're going and where you've been, and the roads twist and turn, and worse than that, the interstate that was very close to where my house was, where I would get on the interstate, I needed to go east. The problem was that in order to go east at this particular spot, you have to get on west. It became very confusing. Wait, I got to go west to go east? How does this work? Many times as I was living there in Virginia Beach in the initial days, I was thankful for my GPS system and the little button on there that says home. I get lost, and if I lose all hope, if I lose, man, I have no bearings about me where I'm going. All I need to do is push the button home, and it's going to redirect me back to my house or to where I'm working at the time. The amazing little instructions that come out typically at first, though, because I've typically gone the wrong way, is, when possible, make a U-turn. And, of course, I had it set to a British accent, so you can imagine what that sounded like. And I would say this over and over and over again, when possible, make a U-turn. Like, well, there's not very many places to make a U-turn on some of those backside roads. So I'd hear this for a while, over and over and over again, when possible, make a U-turn. some ways, this is the message of the book of Zechariah. In some ways, this is the message of God from the minor prophets to all God's people. You have headed down a path 
You have headed in a way that is not according to my word. You are headed the wrong direction. Will you make a U-turn and come back? I wonder if the people of God at this point, after coming out of exile there and they're seeing this older generation, especially they're seeing the small things of the temple. They're seeing how little the glory is of this temple compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. I wonder if they're even thinking, is there any hope for us? Will God even restore us? Uh, we know that he said that he will, but but will he? It's very difficult to see. There's trees, there's things clouding our vision. Will he restore us? And he cries out to his people in a very compassionate yet clear way. Yes, return to me, God says, and I will return to you. But, but look and see what, how he frames this call to them, this command for repentance and renewal in their lives. First of all, he bases it upon his anger against the sin of their parents' generation. In verse 2, look at this. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, Say to them, the people of this generation, return to me. This call, this command of repentance and renewal is is based upon God's anger against sin and his just wrath that they've experienced. But secondly, it's based upon God's continual gracious warnings to them and their parents' generation. Look at verses 4 through 6. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. This is the condemnation. This is the warning that came out time and time and time again. And we've looked at the minor prophets and we've looked and alluded to some of the major prophets that are, that are calling the people to respond and repent. Yet, this is the response of the people. They did not hear or pay attention to my word, God says. So we ask a question, verse 5. So your fathers, where are they? And what's the answer to that question? They're dead. And what about the prophets? Do they live forever? What is the answer? No. What is the implication? The word of God, though, endures. And the word of God must be heeded. It must be obeyed. It must be given attention. Verse 6, but my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Yes, they did. See, here's the reality. God will keep his word. God's word will never return void, Isaiah says. It will always accomplish that which he has sent it out to do. And in this case, the, the accomplishment is to bring about the judgment of God. And in other cases, the accomplishment is to bring about the living truth and hope and life of God in those who respond. So this generation, what is the hope? How do they respond? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. See, they, they recognize, yes, God has spoken and he has acted. He keeps his word. His word endures. His word is sure. It is powerful. It will come to pass. Now, this becomes a warning for the people at the beginning of the book of Zechariah, but it also becomes a a word of comfort to them because if this is true in God's judgment, so also it's true in his provision and his grace and fulfilling of his promises. So here's the question. Will you make a U-turn? 
Will you return home? Will you come back to me, God says. Augustine wrote in his confessions, this is the, really the plea of, all humanity, of God to all humanity. Augustine writes, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And here's really what's going on with the people of God. They're, they're restless. They're, yes, they have been relieved from the exile. They're starting to rebuild the city. They're starting to rebuild the temple. But still their hearts are restless and God is calling them to come home. Come back to him. Another more recent Christian author, A.W. Tozer, writes this. One serious and often distressing problem for many Christians is their feeling that God is far from them or that they are far from God which is really the same thing. So God makes his plea in every generation, will you return to me? If the people respond to God's word and return to him, whether, whether they're unbelievers who need to come in faith and repentance initially, or they're Christians who have left their first love and have pursued other idols and have pursued other interests, or they've, as we saw in Haggai last week, have they busied themselves with things that are not according to the, the interest of God, then God will return and God will restore if they will return to me, God says. So God is making his plea to us today. God is making his appeal to all humanity, to every generation. Will you return to me? But this appeal to humanity and to God's people is not just a, an empty or a void appeal to some idea of who God might be. But a very specific reality. And so throughout the book of Zechariah, there's this theme over and over and over again. It's the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. In fact, we've already seen this initially. But the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, right? Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. And that's how the whole book begins. And this gets repeated throughout the book at least 13 times in this exact phrase. And there's other variations of it. And the emphasis is very clear. The word of the Lord is coming to his people again. God is not hiding himself from his people. God is going to reveal himself to his people. This is why he speaks. This is why the prophets write. This is why they preach. To reveal God and who he is and his character to them. So every section in Zechariah is framed by this statement. The word of the Lord. God is not silent. He is speaking the Lord is revealing himself to his people and he's reminding his people of what he's doing and who he is. Remember, they've been in his exile for 70 years. Would it be easy to forget about all the things that God has done and how he's revealed himself in the past when you've been separated from him for 70 years and separated from the land? Yes, there are prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, who spoke into that situation. And yes, their, their messages were bringing hope and life to the people, even in exile. But here the emphasis is the word of God is not silent. He's still speaking. The other thing I want you to see about this, too, is that the emphasis in Zechariah is not simply on a, a litany of things that we must do now. The, really, there's essentially one message at the beginning. One thing that we must do is return to me. God says, return to me. This is the, the one imperative, the one thing that he calls his people to do, return. And then throughout the rest of the book, the emphasis is on Zechariah knowing and seeing and understanding. So here's what we need, people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We need to see God for who he is. We need to see God for who he is and what he's done in the past and what he's doing now and what he's going to do in the future. And this is what Zechariah does for the people. He once again reveals God to the people from these visions and from the very word of God. We must return to God, but we must return on the basis of his revelation, who he actually is. The other point of emphasis that comes from this is, can be summarized in a Latin phrase that became fairly popular around the time of the Reformation. It's called Semper Reformanda. For those of you who are in the military or the Marines, you know Semper Fi, always faithful. Here, Semper Reformanda, always reforming. Or the idea is that we are always being reformed or transformed or shaped by the word of God. This is the emphasis of Zechariah. Here is the word of God to the people. Here is who God is. Now, the call to you is to shape your life according to what you see. It is sufficient for that. We don't need to go anywhere else. And then, secondly, the other major thing that I want you to see is how God reveals himself throughout this prophet and his ministry. In this book, this short book, there's a title or name of God. If you're reading the ESV or another version like that, it probably says the Lord of hosts. And you see it come up over and over and over again. For example, in verse 3, Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Why the repetition? Well, throughout the book, this this title, this name, comes up 52 times. It's the highest concentration of this name of God in the entire scriptures. What's the point? The Lord of hosts, if you're reading the NIV, translates it, the Lord Almighty, the Lord who is powerful, the Lord who is sovereign over all things, the Lord who is great on high. There's nothing that can oppose him. There's nothing that can stand in his way. The Lord is powerful. Why do the people of God need to be reminded of his great might and power? And he is sovereign over all things. Well, they've just been exiled. They've just come under the mighty hand of the nations. Are they questioning the power of God? Maybe. Are they questioning his promises to them? Possibly. And where do we find ourselves here? Do we question the power of God? Do we question whether or not God is at work? Do we look around us and say, well, this is the day of small things, as they did when they looked at the temple. This revelation of God through his word and through his character that he is mighty helps us see that indeed he is powerful. He is mighty. The people are still facing opposition from those around them. The temple and the building look small. And I think deep in their hearts, they're wondering, is God still for us? Is he still for us? Is he still active? So as we take those big ideas, the word of the Lord and the Lord of hosts, the Almighty One, we turn then to the revelation of God to his people. And the book is really broken down this way. In, in chapters 1 through 6, there are eight visions which reveal God to his people. Then in chapters 7 and 8, to follow up these visions, there are two short sermons that Zechariah gives to the people. 
to help them explain what this renewed covenant worship of God will look like. The, and the revelations compel them to return to this revelation, to this covenant relationship with God. And then finally, the last section, verses, or chapters 9 through 14, is broken up into really two major pieces, chapters 9 through 11 and 12 through 14, where there's these two oracles or these two burdens that Zechariah gives about the coming king. We'll spend most of our time here, that remains in the first part, these visions and what they show. As Ethan already alluded at the beginning of our service, the, the center really of these visions are in chapters 3 to 4. In fact, the way that the visions are laid out, they, it's very clearly as a parallelism or a structure that points us to the middle of visions, which, which happened in chapters 3 and 4. So you can look there. We're not going to take the time to read all of the passages there, but we see in your heading, you might see a statement this, a vision of Joshua the high priest. And chapter 4, a vision of the golden lampstand. And these two visions help us understand the great need of the people. One, the great need of cleansing of their sin. And this is the only way that they can be truly renewed in the spiritual realm, in their spiritual relationship with God. And the second need is that they need the presence of God with them. So these visions highlight that God is going to act. He is going to cleanse Joshua. He is going to cleanse the people. And through this new temple that Zerubbabel is building, the presence of God will once again be with his people. Now, of course, these are markers that point us to the greater reality, though, right? Joshua, the priest, who is covered in the filth of the sin of his people, and they all need cleansing. The lampstand with the olive trees that are situated near it, display the presence of God in the temple and this everlasting presence as the olive trees are continually supplying the oil for these lampstands. And these visions together point to the Messiah who will come. The priest, the king, Jesus himself. So in chapter 3, verse 4, look at this. The angel says to those who are standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, with pure garments. And then in chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, probably one of the most famous verses from from Zechariah. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone and shouts of grace, grace to it. What's the emphasis here? The emphasis of this is that God is going to act on behalf of his people. God is going to cleanse his people. God is going to remove their their filth of sin. And he's going to clothe them with righteousness, with clean garments. Well, how is this going to come about? It's going to come about through the power of God, through the spirit, through his presence. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. See, the things that God calls us to, see, the demands that God places on the people's uh, lives, his people's lives, will always be empowered by his presence and by his grace. So at the end of that verse in chapter 7, they come and they cry out, grace, grace to it. And this is the focus of of the vision. This is the focus of of the revelation of Zechariah. It's all about Christ. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about the one who will come and accomplish this work for God's people. And they cry out, grace, grace. There's nothing else but grace. And we look at the New Testament. And when God begins a work in his people, 
God promises us that it will not fail. For he is the one who does it. He is the one who will bring it to completion. So Paul writes in the book of Philippians, he says, I'm confident of this one thing, that that he who began a good work in you, he will carry it on to the completion until the day of Jesus Christ. This, in essence, is what we call in the Old Testament and the New Testament as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We're celebrating this new covenant. In fact, this week in a small group, I was gently reminded by one of the men that we don't talk about the new covenant enough. Here it is. This is the new covenant being explained. The old covenant is incapable of bringing about transformation in human lives. Why? Because it cannot take away sin. But the new covenant, the covenant that we have in Christ, because he is the perfect sacrifice, it will remove our sin, it will cleanse us. And then God will pour out his spirit, the spirit of Christ on us, so that we will obey and we will respond. So in Ezekiel, this is foreshadowed and prophesied in Ezekiel eleven nine nineteen. God says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from their heart the, the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And then in Jeremiah 31, which is the classic passage of the new covenant, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. This fulfillment comes decisively in Jesus Christ. And it comes decisively to only those who are in Christ, who are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Why? Because as we're united with Christ, he liberates us from our sin. And he cleanses us from it. Colossians, Paul says it this way, Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal debts which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And here in the passage about Joshua, even Satan shows up as the accuser, the one who wants to condemn the people of God, and God silences him. Why? Because he takes away the sin of his people. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is how Paul says it to them, God made him, who is that Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that, the, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious exchange. We who are sinful, we who are filthy in our clothes and are under the wrath and judgment of God are set free and cleansed by the blood of Christ, by God himself. Brothers and sisters, this is really the focus of the message. This is the focus of Zechariah, the coming Messiah who will liberate his people, who will cleanse them and will make it possible for them to truly return and find spiritual renewal and transformation. This is what the book of Zechariah is all about. So we keep going, and and we see the center of the message, but then we see the beginning of the message in chapter 1 and chapter 6, and these visions work together. And God comforts his people by reminding them that, that God is jealous for his people. He is faithful, and he is merciful, and his promise to restore his people will come to pass. So in chapter 1, verse 13 the Lord gives comforting words. He says, And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Verse 15, And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little against my people, they furthered the disaster. They further oppressed my people. They took it to a level that that I did not intend. 
Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. See, God is going to comfort and restore his people. He's faithful to his promises. And those who oppress God's people, those who are the enemies of God and God's people, they will be conquered. So this first vision in chapter 1, the nations are at rest. And God says, this is not right. The nations are at rest, but my people are not. God's anger is against oppressive nations. Those that are in the north, as we see in the passage in in chapter 6, the chariots go out. The conquering one conquers these nations, but God's comfort and mercy is towards his people. God is going to bring rest and peace for his people through his king. In Christ, God is jealously committed to the people of his promise. God in Christ has defeated all his enemies and the enemies of his people. So again, in Colossians 2, there's what Paul writes. Through Christ, he disarmed the powers and authorities. And he made a public spectacle, display of them, as he triumphs over them by the cross. It's an amazing thing. Satan, the nations, try to oppress God's people, destroy God's people, even the Messiah himself. And their weapons are death. And here's the great reversal. Christ comes, and through the weapon of death that the nations and all his enemies are trying to use against him, God uses as the very tool the weapon to bring righteousness and hope and victory for his people. And even now, we have a foretaste of this in our lives. This victory. Because he's conquered the sin in our own lives. So as we turn from sin even now, as we press into Christ, as we look to Christ for hope and restoration, as we say no to sin and no to unrighteousness, and we turn from our idols and look to Christ, this is the victory that Christ has bought for us. And we experience a foretaste of that. And we anticipate when he will return and he'll wipe away all tears and he will crush all wickedness and he will destroy all oppression. And so anytime we see even an unbeliever come to this childlike faith in Christ like we saw Levi turn and say, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. This is the victory of God on display. This is the kingdom of God breaking into history. So we just stop here for a second and ask this. Are we praying for this sort of understanding and revival and renewal in our own hearts? Do we, do we realize that through Christ, all powers and all sin has been conquered by the cross? Or do we live as sort of a defeated people, like the people in Zechariah's day who struggle to believe the promises of God? Who we look around and we look at the opposition and we look at the difficulty and we look at the sinfulness and we say, is there any hope? And Zechariah proclaims this message to the people of God and to us today and says there's hope. Because God is comforting his people because he's sovereignly in control over all things and he has conquered them and he will conquer them and he will one day come and make all things right. And then very quickly, the final vision's come together, is, and we can interpret them in this way, that God is victorious over all opposition. And the last vision, vision was leading us towards this reality, but here it becomes explicit. In chapters 1, verses 18 to 20, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and in chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, and 5, 9 through 11, they, they work together 
And in these short visions, they picture for us a whole where God is victorious over all external opposition to his people as well as internal opposition to his people. He's bringing about total transformation from the inside out in his people, while at the same time he's, he's relieving the powers of their authority and their opposition in this world around us. Namely, Satan and sin himself. And then the final part of the book, chapters 9 through 14, again, these are passages that there's glimpses that are very familiar to us because they're quoted time and time again in the Gospels, especially during the crucifixion and the Passion Week of Jesus. In chapter 9, we see the Messiah riding on the foal, the colt, the, the, a donkey, the foal, um, the colt of a donkey. And he's presented as a mighty warrior in chapter 9 and chapter 10. He's a mighty warrior, but he's a humble king, this Messiah. And in chapters 12 to 14, he's a rejected shepherd and a pierced savior. The one text we'll just look at briefly, Zechariah 12, verse 10, and you can look there. And this will lead us into our communion time together. Zechariah 12:10. this prophecy is familiar to us. But God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. See, this king who's going to come, he is mighty. But in his first coming, he was rejected. He's a mighty king, but a humble king. He comes as a good shepherd, even while the leaders of Israel, all throughout the time of the prophets and even the exile, there were bad shepherds, bad leaders who, who sought to simply take advantage and abuse the people. In fact, one text in Zechariah describes them as shepherds who actually eat the flesh of the sheep. They're not caring for the sheep, they're devouring them. But, but this one who will come, the Messiah, the king, the priest king who comes, he will be rejected, yes, and he will be pierced, yes, but John 10, he will be the good shepherd of his people. He will be the one who willingly lays down his life for his people. He will be the one who willingly gives up his rights for his people. He is the good shepherd. And so Zechariah proclaims this message of hope and comfort to the people of God who are struggling like we are in our day. We look around and we're overwhelmed by the evil around us in our world. We're, we look at our own lives and we say, man, we are so sinful. We are convicted of our sin. And we ask, is there any hope? Is there any true deliverance? We look at the things that we think that, that we should be obeying and doing and, and even here in our church, and these are small things. We're a small people. We're not a big church. We don't, you know, we don't have a big influence in the world. Are these small in the eyes of God? And it is, this message that Zechariah brings is, is essentially take your eyes off yourself and find your hope and find your comfort and find your joy and depend in Him. Look to Him. 
Look to the one who is going to conquer. Look to the one who has made a way. Look to the one who is victorious. Look to the one who is building his kingdom. Look to the one who is transforming your lives. Look to the one where there is hope. Plead with him. Depend on him. Call out to him. Turn to him. This is the message of Zechariah.